Hello, Bridgetown podcast watchers and listeners. I'm Tyler Staten, the lead pastor of Bridgetown Church. And I would love to invite you to consider giving to our Christmas giving campaign this Advent season. It will extend all the way through year end, and we are raising funds toward three particular initiatives, Justice Allies, Justice Actions, and Bridgetown Kids. Every cent given will go to those three initiatives. You can find out much more and give at bridgetown.church give. Matthew thirteen fourteen through 17. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Other understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are the you, your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Love comes close enough to know. This is a phrase I haven't been able to get out of my head the whole of the Advent season. It's a phrase that Tyler said probably months ago and then said again recently, but I can't seem to shake it. Love comes close enough to know. As I've thought about that phrase, I've thought about the million tiny moments I've known this to be true in my life. I've thought about all the people I've seen from afar desiring in some way to know who after coming close, I knew and discovered them to be more wonderful than I had hoped. I thought about my time in foreign countries, in particular in the Middle East, places I had heard about and read about and knew vicariously through missionaries and family and friends. And yet when I stepped onto the soil of that country and saw the faces of the people in it, I knew and loved it differently than I could have perceived or understood prior to being there. I've thought about the many people I have judged and made universal assumptions about based on my own prejudices and dispositions and how in moments I could have never planned, I found them to be the first to serve me or to help me. And in that, in that closeness, I knew love differently in them and from them. And that shaped me, and at the same time, it had the power to shatter the prejudice I had previously held. Love comes close enough to know. As I've sat with that morning by morning, trying to give myself and even just a few moments of my day to this Advent season, this is the reverb I have found echoing in my soul. Love, Jesus, came close enough to know me. And while in so many ways that is poetic and romantic in nature, if I'm honest, sitting with that has been a a bit of a stopping place for me. A place that while I appreciate the power of its intent, I have found its impact to be surprisingly less welcome within myself. 
What does it mean that I can really be known by God and know God? And what does it mean that he comes close? And what happens when he does? It's easy in Advent, in this holiday season, to keep this reality at more of a conceptual level. It's easier, I think, to embrace it like you would a comforting phrase on a Hallmark card. You know, God comes close, Merry Christmas. Where's the eggnog? But I think within Advent, at least as we've all been learning it, there's more than just a story being told. I think we know that. I think some of us even feel that in a new way this season. We know that somewhere within this story, within this deeper reality, an invitation at some level is being extended to us. And so the question I'm sitting with and the question really we're left with is as we move towards the end of this season, what are we going to do with that? What will it mean for us to understand God in a deeper way, to understand his coming with more than just our minds? but also with our hearts. Throughout Advent, we together as a community have been exploring the story of Jesus' coming through the lens of his cousin John, or John the Bee, as some of you will remember. Our series title is Calling Out in the Wilderness, and from that, we have heard John's appeal for us and all people to see and know and experience God in our midst, despite his often hiddenness among us. And today we're going to end Advent and we'll do so by revisiting an ancient prophecy from Isaiah and then we'll sit in Mary, Jesus' mother's story a little bit. And then we'll linger together within the tension and the mystery of what it means that God might come so close to us. So let's start with the prophecy of Isaiah. Is that what you're up for? Yeah, I could feel it in this room. Look down at Matthew chapter 13. Now, I'm not going to read this because we already had it beautifully read for us, but I wanna say a few things about this prophecy. And really where we're jumping into in our text, we're finding ourselves here in the middle of Jesus actually speaking with his disciples. And he brings up Isaiah chapter six, and he's referencing Isaiah, this famous prophet's conversation with God where in that conversation he's told that as he goes out to tell people about God and about his coming, that there would be those who couldn't see or hear or truly understand the message that was being brought. And in that, God was telling Isaiah that they would not only reject his message, but they would reject the God who was coming near to them. So Jesus quotes Isaiah here, a passage of scripture that the disciples would have been really familiar with, and he basically says to them, this is still true. That there will be and can be a contingent of people that while God is literally speaking to them, as it was in their context, or if God was in their midst, that they still may not be able to perceive him. They still may not be able to understand what it means that he is actually with them. And as wild and simple as this reality is, what we read here seems to be, at least in a few ways, a signal or a warning to us as well. This reality that Jesus was speaking to was, as we understand it in the scriptures, a common and necessary caution for those of us who are proximate to God, for those of us who are actually near to him. We know that at least five times in the New Testament, this particular passage of scripture was quoted. In fact, it's mentioned in all the gospels as well as the book of Acts, which means to those of us, the readers receiving this message, is that it's important that there is something universal that's being said over and over and over again for us to get, for those of us who are seeking God to actually find and know about him. 
Now, this warning, as you might have gathered, is that while we may be close to God, that while we may know about God, while we may find ourselves in a church service like this or in a community of people who know about him, it is still possible that we too could misunderstanding him or experiencing him in a way that is personal and real to us. Now often I've read this passage of scripture and excused myself from its meaning because you know, I'm a professional Christian, I know God and I've said yes to him. But in particular in this Advent season, I've been reminded that Jesus' coming is not an invitation just to know God once, but it's an invitation to keep knowing him. Because the nature of God's coming to this world tells us something about how he continues to come. And the caution we find here from Jesus is as ancient as that reality. Now, this warning we find from Jesus connects us in a lot of ways to the mystery of God's coming, and it's from that uh, that we see his coming, even as we've heard it Christmas after Christmas. We're invited to see it again in a new way, to experience this story more deeply. So we're gonna try to do that today, is that all right? I'm gonna, let's do a little Bible drill, who's up for it? First person to get there gets to take one of these trees home. So uh, that's a joke. Don't do that. Luke chapter one is where I'm going to ask you to turn. We're going to look at verse 26. I mean, I was trying to think about what would be fun to take home. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe fun for a little bit. All right. Luke chapter one, verse 26. Now, let me just say this. This is gonna be familiar to you, hopefully, especially if you know the Christmas story, but I just want you to listen and just receive, follow along and just listen for what the Lord might have for you um, as I read. So verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel who went to her, uh, went to her and said, Mary, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be to me, uh, may your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Now our story goes on from there. We find Mary going to see this cousin, Elizabeth, that's mentioned here by the angel. And uh, what we find is that Elizabeth actually confirms the word that the angel spoke and then Mary bursts into this crazy worship song and she worships God because what he said was true. And he somehow saw fit to come close to her. 
Now, historically, the church has captured this moment, captured Mary in particular in this story, and made her quite iconic, and I mean that in the most literal way. This is how many people see the moment. I mean, isn't that gorgeous, though? Yes, okay, some of you are like, no, I get it. This is how we see her, like a little Mona Lisa-esque, you know, a little tiny smile cleaned up without wrestle, fully embracing her son, Um, a little stoic and very flawless seeming in so many ways. And yet, what we read in her words through the end of this chapter, through this famous Magnificat or the song that she sang in worship to God, in that we find that there was a bit more to this moment, a bit more to the journey to this place, a bit more than we could perceive through an icon. Mary was aware that at some point in this narrative, she was going to give birth to the Christ child, to the Messiah, the savior of the world. And in every way, it seems, she would have been forced to reconcile what that actually meant. Tim Keller says that no one could accuse Mary of blind faith here. She wasn't being flighty or passive. In fact, we read that she was greatly troubled, human, and her response to God coming near to her. And in that, we see her wrestle within God's presence, and not just emotionally, but in a way it seems that the scriptures have noted before. In this story, we find an often missed and subtle but profound image actually unfolding, one that's deeply connected and layered within the pages of the scriptures. Mary would house the Son of God, literally. She would be the place that he dwelled in silence and in darkness and in vulnerability. She would carry God within her. And that reality undoubtedly shattered her notion of who God was and what he might be. This was her wrestle. God coming close meant reconciling who he would be, not just to her in her life, but to the entire world. All throughout the scriptures, we read about a metaphor, this metaphor of a womb, a house for God within us. And this is the language God uses to describe his nearness to us, his place for communion with us. This is how he uh, gives us an image of what it means for God to actually come so close within us. And while we see it most clearly or visibly in this story with Mary, it's not the first time it's been told. Mary would carry Jesus in her womb, but this imagery of a womb refers to more than just a biological reality. It also refers to the innermost part of one's being or one's heart. The Hebrew words for a womb are rechem. Can you you say that? Let's give it a go. Rechem. You know, that's what you got to get. I'd listened a lot of times last night to how to say that. And then betin, can you say betin? Yeah. And they are both intrinsically connected to the Hebrew word for compassion, meaning that the womb can be and it often is the carry or the place for God's compassion to live and dwell and intersect with our humanity. It is the place of God's tenderness and presence to us. The womb, as we see it throughout the scriptures, is a metaphor used for this place of communion, this place where people do deep business with God. And this is true like in the story of Jonah. Do you remember him? Yeah, we read that he was in the belly of the fish, or the Hebrew word there is the womb or the rechem, where he met with God. Or in the Psalms, we read that the rechem or the womb is the word described for the dawning moment of the morning. 
the place that holds both beauty and wonder. It is the place that both Job and the prophet Jeremiah cried from their deepest despair and desperation. And it's the place where God's creative power was housed. And we see that also in Job and Jeremiah and David in the Psalms. This image, this story of the womb isn't just for the holiday season, but it is visible in the Advent story like we see it in no other place. Mary, in verse 28 of our text, is told that the Lord is with her. And she, just like us, had to figure out what that would mean. Now, the womb, this imagery, um, the place we find really centered at Mary's story is our invitation to consider how close God actually wants to come to us and how he comes in the first place. The womb, as we all know, starts out as a place of hiddenness, of darkness, a place that houses the tiniest of presents and the tiniest of miracles. You usually don't even know that something is in the womb until after that presence has grown or begun to fill it. And Mary began her journey with Jesus, not with something or reality fully grown, but with a small promise, a small hidden promise. And that promise didn't become present to her or through her until she surrendered, until she made space for that promise to grow. So my point is this. Mary isn't just an icon to us in the holiday season. She isn't just a little statue we set out next to Joseph and Jesus, wherever it is that you've placed that in your home. She is a model for us. A model for how we know God deeply and personally and of how we house the welcoming of his presence, the welcoming of his ability to come close to us. Now, for Mary, it started with a question, her journey of housing the Lord's presence. And the question was, how can this be? Where she both wondered and pondered what was on offer, and then out of those two places, we find that she surrendered. And this is our invitation too. There's an invitation to wonder and ponder and then surrender in our knowing of the Lord. Now, wondering and pondering are not words we use very often, although if you do, great. Uh, But they are, in many ways, our key to understanding how we know God in our midst. So I wanna talk about each for just a second and then we'll, we'll come to the end of our time. Um, In this story, uh, the Advent story, Mary really wondered at what the angel meant when he spoke to her. Now, this word wonder in the Greek means to take audit. It is an accounting word for those of you who are accountants in this room or you like adding. Uh, And it means really to add things up or to weigh the outcome. This word could also be translated in so many ways to to be intensely like rational. So Mary wasn't having an explosive emotional experience. As Mary wondered, we're told that she actually took audit. She had to really consider these words that were being spoken to her. Mary took this invitation seriously. And she was weighing or carrying uh, in her this conversation around what it would mean to carry God in her. Now, we know historically, just based on her situation and circumstance, that Mary had to weigh things like potential destitution that she could be left within this engagement that she existed in and live a deeply impoverished, destitute life. We also know that she had to consider divorce. That was a very real outcome for her as she weighed what the angel said, that Joseph maybe wouldn't want to participate in this unique experience. And she also had to weigh death. 
as a very real part of the consequences of what it would mean for her to get pregnant in her day and her time. Mary took seriously the invitation of the angel. She also wondered at what God being close would mean for her relationships, for her destiny, for her present moment and the things and the people she valued. She had to, at least at some level, because she was Jewish, had to consider what her family had been waiting for for years and years and years. She had to consider what, what it meant to live in the brokenness she was experiencing and yet know that the Messiah of the world was coming. She had to wonder at what it would mean for the desperation of her people, the nation that she existed and was a part of. She had to wonder about what it would mean that this ancient promise would be fulfilled through her. Mary knew the prophecies and she knew the promises and still she had to wonder, she had to weigh the outcome at what this would all mean. And she didn't stop there. We're told later on that she pondered. That word ponder in the Greek means to bring together in one's mind, to reconcile what's happening within. So Mary, beyond weighing what this would mean for her, had to get to a place where she reconciled the outcome where she brought together all the arguments and then settled the matter in her heart. Remember, she wasn't forced into the decision. She was presented with an invitation and she had the decision to make. Pondering this reality of God coming so near to her meant that she could reconcile at some level how it would change her life and the lives of the entire world. Weighing and reconciling. These were two things that were essential for what would need to come next. And that was her surrender. One of the most famous phrases we have from Mary is this one, and it comes at the end of hearing that God has chosen to come close to her. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Another famous way to say it, it's why I stumble through it every time, is let it be to me as you have said. Mary, in this defining and extraordinary moment, reconciled the reality of God's nearness. Knowing what it would mean and knowing that there was a seed that was being planted inside of her that she didn't know the outcome for. She didn't really know where this reality would take her and yet she, as God comes near to her, she responds to him ultimately in surrender. Surrender was the gateway to his presence. Surrender meant no control, but it did mean communion with God. Now, Mary in that moment definitely surrendered her will. But what we can't miss is that she was also surrendering herself to a promise that she also knew well. A promise that was rooted in the past, now visible to her in the present and certain in the future. God will come, God is coming, and God will come again. Mary understood the word as John put it. The word made flesh in her heart. And in her we see that the word we understand in our hearts is the word we become. The moment of the incarnation is an invitation to know God, but to also carry him, to incarnate him in our lives as well, to know him closely. In this story, we see that in order to do this, in order to incarnate God into our lives, to be an actual dwelling place, a communion space with God, to be a womb for his presence, that there will be a position we have to take, a person we will have to know, and a promise we will have to receive and live into. So I have to say a few words about each of those. Are you ready? Did you write them down? PPP. It sounds weird to say that out loud. 
position. In Mary and in Jesus' earlier warning to us, we find that both missing God and meeting God are predicated by the position of one's heart. There is a position that we all take when either we're meeting someone for the first time or we're seeing someone again after a while that we haven't seen or someone we're excited to see. And if we have an already preconceived negative idea about this person or we just feel unworthy or a little bit insecure, often our posture looks like this as they're approaching us. Some people do this awkward back thing like this. Have you seen those people where they kind of rock forward? Anyway, I'm probably one of them, so don't tell me uh, if that's been your experience. But this is kind of how we look, right? And then if we're excited about meeting someone, we usually look a little bit more like this. Don't, that's weird. But you know, you just look a little bit more like extend your hand and shake your hand or whatever it may be. You know what I'm talking about? More open, as my acting teacher would always say, open. Uh, And so that's what it was like. Now this is a silly example, but you're gonna hopefully remember it when you go home. My point is this. The truth is above all these things, the position you take towards someone or something ultimately determines the outcome of your relationship to it. And while it seems simple, especially when we're talking about the Christmas story, the reality is that the positioning of the body or the heart are often only recognized and noted by the one who's receiving it, which means that it's easy for us to miss. It's easy to miss how important our positioning is. It's easy to assume we were totally open. You know, I think about conversations with my friend where she's like, you were standing like this the whole time. I was like, no, I wasn't. I would never, you know, when meeting someone new, it's like you don't notice it, only they can see it. It's easy for us to miss it, to assume we're totally open to God, when in reality there is very little space for him to actually come near to us. The position we take is usually something we fail to notice, especially in our relationship with God, because at its core, even if it's subconscious, it involves our comfort and our certainty and our control, and we don't like that. And yet it's key. The position and the disposition of our heart is key, a key connecting point in any relationship. Positioning your heart in an open way towards God is risky. Again, like any relationship, it could crack you wide open or allow room for him to reveal the thing you've been hiding or worshiping or it could make space for him to speak words to you that you fear may cost you something or may cost you everything. But the position, that position we hold towards God will directly impact how and when he comes. It will directly impact how we experience him. Mary so famously said, let it be to me as you have said. The position Mary took wasn't ignorant and neither was it fully confident, which I find really encouraging. It was, at least as we understand it, humble and dependent on faith. It was, it was a position of a heart that was open that allowed for the reality of the presence of God to come near without knowing the outcome. A famous theologian once said, without poverty of spirit, there cannot be an abundance of God. Position as we see it in her was about the posture of her heart, that same posture that her son would later take in a garden just hours before his death. That's where we start. Now, In order to know God, to consider him as a person, to be a place where he actually dwells, we have to recognize the person that he is. And if we look at the Advent story, we see that Jesus is coming the first time, again, tells us how he comes to us now. And in this story, we see him coming a few significant ways that I just wanna note, are there more? 
totally. But I just wanna name a few because I think it's helpful for us to really grasp what the Spirit might be saying to us. Now, the first thing we can notice is how Jesus comes or really who he comes to, and that is to the least likely. Mary and shepherds and old prophets and priests, barren people and hopeless people and poor people and powerful people and sages, these are the people that Jesus comes to. And whatever lens through which you're viewing that, you could say they are the least likely or the least deserving of his coming. Jesus comes to everyone. We are all least likely in so many ways. And yet what's weird about this or the tension I feel even when I'm saying this is that so many of us struggle to accept that he has actually come to us. We see him coming for her or for him or them, but we rarely see that God comes to us or even rarely believe that God might be coming near to me. We ask that question, why would God want to be near to me? I'm just, or I just did, or I have always been. And so we kind of excuse ourselves from the equation, but here's what I want you to hear me say. In order to know God, you have to also recognize that he has come to you. That the person has come to you, all of you, all your brokenness, all your addictions, all your selfishness, all your idolatry, all of your best efforts and your deepest desires, God has come to you. The person we experience in Advent is the God who comes near to us completely. He has come to the least of us, and this is where we'll find him. Now, next we see him come in vulnerability, born into brokenness and darkness. And here's all I wanna say about this, is you have to remember that Jesus came as a human. This is, by the way, a very significant part of our story as Christians, so we're gonna embrace it fully. Now, now the point here that's so significant is that Jesus came as a human, which means you have to know that he is a God who can be empathetic. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to live within the brokenness and the imperfections of this world. And he came in this particular way as we celebrated in this Advent season so that we would know that he could relate to us completely. Not as we will be or the ways he hopes we will grow, but as in who we are now. He vulnerably comes, puts on flesh, the scriptures say, and he makes himself subject to our world and to death. And his coming in this way tells us that he can actually enter into our stories, into our lives. He is not like all the other gods who are far off and absent and observing from the periphery. He is a God who has seen in real time life as we've experienced it. He is an empathetic high priest, meaning he can pray for us perfectly and with the purest of compassion because he has walked as we have walked. God coming in vulnerability means that we can be known in our vulnerability and that we move from shame to a righteous dignity because he is able to reflect back who we rightly are. He has come to those of us born in brokenness and through his own vulnerability we find dignity. Now, we also see him come quietly in, in a small kind of way, and it's important just to recognize that his coming was not obvious at first. In fact, Jesus' coming was so small that it was hidden within a womb of a poor peasant girl in a town called Galilee, which you would have never heard of if you didn't go to this church. He does not come with loud songs or pomp and circumstance, but quietly in the body and heart of a teenage girl. He comes in smallness and quietly, which means he can be missed or dismissed by us, but not because he's small or quiet, but because we expect him to come another way or to be another God. 
The way he comes like this, in smallness and in the quiet, tells us that who he is is greater than what he can do for us. By that I mean just that, that our relationship to him is more significant than how we perceive him coming. He is not loud and he is not pushy and he is not obnoxious in how he comes. He is small and quiet and sacrificial because love, real love, always comes this way. Now finally we see him come close and you're like, you've already said that like 12 times, I know. But I just need to say it again because I want you to just settle in your minds that the person of God comes so close that he inhabits the womb and the entire world at the same time that he came so close that he learned everybody's name and he eats our food and he follows the family profession and he lives in a neighborhood and in a community that's like, that's our little Jesus. <laughs> Who Jesus is, all of these things and more is revealed in his coming. And it's in that revelation that we find hope and a promise. A promise for us, for what's to come, but also a promise for what has been. Resting within his coming is a promise, and it's not one that's just meant to be observed or honored. It is one that we are holistically meant to receive. It is a promise of who he will be to us now in his daily coming to us, as we've even just heard a few of these things described, but it is also a promise of who he will be when he comes for us once and for all. Now, I know how promises feel. They are so annoying to me. I mean, they're nice, but they're so annoying because so often promises feel so far away, don't they? It's like, I mean, a hope in the atmosphere or the cloud. They exist, you know, and somehow I'm gonna access them. They feel disconnected, but the truth is in our story, in this Advent story, the promise that we're given, the promise that he comes riding in on and the promise that we're existing in now and the promise we will ride out here, of here on has so much to do with the declaration of his closeness to us. His desire, his promise, almost it is covenantal in saying I'm never leaving you or forsaking you. It is the fuel for our encounter with him now. It's the knock at the door of like, hey, are you available? All the way to this consummation of a wedding feast that we will partake in one day. His promises to us are not just rhetoric, they are life. They are places we encounter and hope for and dream about the presence of God. Promise tethers us to him. It's almost like the wedding rings we exchange on a wedding day. It's a promise, a declaration of what is to come and the reality I'm going to experience here and now and again in a greater way in the future. We all know that there are times in our spiritual life where our closeness to God can be muddled by our experience of the world, a gnarly week, or whatever it is, emotional trigger, or whatever's going on. And the promise that we receive is meant to anchor us. It's meant to draw us back to a foundation that is firm so that we can keep experiencing the closeness of God. The promises of God remind us that he is not what our emotions say about us, but that he is so much more, that he is who he says he is. It's the promise that he will draw near to us as we draw near to him that helps us navigate tragedies when our life is spinning out of control. It's the promise that God says he will give us a hope and a future and he won't withhold any good things from us that help us when life really feels uncertain and you're lost and you really can't find your way back to him. It's the promise of a steadfast love that we cling to when our love for him wavers. The promise is a callback. 
It's a call in the foggy night that God is with us. And it's what propels us to go and find him again and again. The promise we receive about him, like Mary, shapes not only our present reality, but our future one as well. Promise propels us into uncertain places. That's the name of this game. It places, that de- that we, it places us in a place that demands faith. But that is where we find God. When we're having to cling to the promises and we're having to exist in the realm of faith, we find God there. That's what's on offer through this invitation. If we want to know him in a deeper way in this season, if we want to experience God, we will have to revisit these Ps. We will have to position ourselves to do so. We'll have to know and embrace him as the person he is, to look for him in all the ways that he wants to come to us. And we'll have to hold fast to the promises he has made as we wait for him to fulfill each of those. I recently read this beautiful quote from my favorite uh, poet, Wendell Berry, and it says this, to treat life as less than a miracle is to close your life off to it. He's so dramatic and a little bit punchy, and I just, I really do adore him. Um, This quote, it kind of stuck with me, and it got me thinking a lot about the miracle of getting to have God so close to us as we celebrate it in this season. It got me thinking about how God coming close will demand from us this radical acceptance of this Advent or Christmas thing and how this journey we're on together even as a community is more than just a religious practice or a rhythm in the church calendar. It is, as Wendell says it, a miracle that we are beholding and at the same time an invitation to experience a miracle ourselves. Life is a miracle and the life of God in us and with us is nothing short of that too. I mean, it's really bananas if you think about it. Which has made me wonder as your friend and as a pastor, where you need the miracle of God in this season. Where are you looking for God? Where are you needing to understand him in more than just your mind, but in your heart? I've wondered if there are many in this season who feel as though they might have missed it. You know, somehow missed God in their midst, even though they've tried and they've lit the Advent wreath and they've eaten all the chocolate and they've done what they needed to do and yet it feels as though they still don't understand him, know him in their circumstances, in their finances, in their relationships, maybe in your home or just in your heart. Maybe some of you feel like you just might be too late And I don't know if that's like literal or metaphorical or historical, but I've wondered if maybe some of you feel as though God with you has passed you by. Because if he was going to come, he would have made himself known. Or maybe you feel as though you've done something at some level that keeps him at bay and that's okay, so you really can't know him this way. Or maybe still you've given it all you've got and he seems to have passed you by anyway and so it feels a little disappointing. Maybe some of you are, whether you could say it or not, scared about what it would be like if he came close, about what it would cost you or confront within you if he actually got proximate to that, and I know that reality. And so at some level in this holiday season, you've kind of kept it surface or casual, you know, just talking about the basics and the kids or whatever. When there's this ache deep within you, that does want to know more, that 
just maybe feels afraid of what it would mean. And still I wonder if maybe there are some of you who, like me, hunger to know God more deeply, but you're having a hard time or a harder time finding him in this season. And you've asked, but it feels like maybe he hasn't come, at least the way you expected, and so some of your waiting has turned into whining, and you need a little hope. I don't know where this sermon hits you this morning, but I felt like the most important thing I was meant to say to you today is that it's not too late and you didn't miss him. Advent is about God coming to us and we have to remember how he comes and that he did come. And he came to the least of us and the most impoverished in spirit and in life, to those who have needs and to those who have just wants He came in vulnerability and in a way that he really does understand. The message of Advent is that God is coming still. Yes, Christmas is coming and we will celebrate a week from today and all the ways that we do, but until then, we still wait. We wait on his coming to us and we allow the waiting to be like Mary's womb a place for the mystery of God to dwell and the promises of God to begin to take root and for the glory of the invisible reality of God's presence to actually become locked and engaged within us, to be a place where his presence dwells and grows and sometimes, sometimes that is really uncomfortable. Like a pregnant woman close to giving birth, it becomes disruptive in many ways and yet there's a miracle on the other side. There are labor pains in this journey. There's a wrestle. There's discomfort and there is the cost of carrying a life that is not your own in the waiting. But there is also joy and life very abundant. Remember that how he came is how he will come again. And no matter what the story or season looks like for you now, we can be sure that just like a pregnant woman in labor, we will not be able to stop the process of his coming. It is what we do with it now that matters most. To carry life and to bring it forth in this world is also to anticipate life again. Ask any mother. And in Advent, as we celebrate how Jesus came and the reality that we can know him and carry his life within us now, we also at the same time anticipate the life that is to come. We stand on the promise that all of our pain will be swallowed up one day in perfect and complete joy. But until then, we wait and we welcome God to come close. Um, I hate to be this person, but I am tragically always a little sad at Christmas. Anyone else? Yeah, oh good, this room a lot more vulnerable than the last. And I can't tell you what it is. Um, It could be my past, or I don't think so, but uh, maybe it's just the wave of emotions I like to ride, or maybe it's the overconsumption of Hallmark movies, which does happen every season. Um, But every year without fail, I seem to clearly know what it is that I am waiting for in Advent. It's like God makes it, kind of peels it back and makes it really clear. And within that, I feel the sadness of not having that thing that I am aching for or longing for. In this season, I've just needed a little personal hope. I'm not like in a devastating place at all. I am in a really extraordinary place. And I'm doing it with you, which is just, wow. 
But, but I am in a place of need, and I, I always will be until I see Jesus, which is good for me to remind myself. <laughs> but this year, I am in particular waiting for some hope, hope in the deep places of my heart that God knows and God can reach. Now, with that, I wanna be honest, just give a family confession that I, even as I was studying this text, um, I felt pretty good across the board about knowing God in my heart. Like, I was like, okay, issue for the people, not you, Red. And, uh, and uh, that's not true. Um, because here's what I'm learning and here's what he graciously slapped into my face while I was studying for this. Um, I'm learning that Understanding him once or even a hundred times doesn't mean I don't need to keep understanding him in my heart, knowing him more deeply than I did before. And in the Advent season, in this Advent season, I need hope, and that is a hope that can only be given to me by God's nearness to me. It can only be satisfied in him coming close to me. Our lives are not static ones, they are dynamic, ever-changing and ever-putting me in a place where I need God over and over again. And his coming to us in this season, as it has been in so many other seasons, is more about him being near to us, coming close to us, than it is about what we get from him as his closeness comes. I am learning that him being near to me is changing me, and it's allowing me to see him in places I never saw him before. Him coming close to us is not some kind of Santa Claus effect, but it is more about us becoming like Mary, a place that he can dwell, a place where we are transformed and ultimately satisfied. In this season, there is an invitation for you, and I'm making an appeal because this is the last Sunday of Advent. There's an invitation for you And if you think, is she talking to me? I am. There's an invitation for you to know him more deeply. There's an invitation in your heart, whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, to know him again. And so many of us need to. The question is, will we have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand?